In your bulletins, uh, the passage is printed and it comes from a variety of Proverbs and you can follow along as I read it aloud. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be, not, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an ad adulteress? Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways, for a prostitute is a deep pit, an adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. Three things are too wonderful for me, four I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. This is the word of the Lord. You know, sexual lust, uh, by the way, when I talk about lust, I'm talking specifically about sexual lust because that's how the seven deadly sins is talking about lust. But sexual lust is probably one of the biggest culprits in terms of what can potentially make us fools in a very uh, short period of time. Uh, people oftentimes make very foolish life decisions based on sexual lust. And some of you probably know people or have friends or maybe you were in this position yourself or maybe you look in your past and you say, why did I make that decision? Why did I get into that relationship? Uh, but you get into a relationship with somebody of questionable character uh, because you're so infatuated with their outward appearance. And uh, by the way, I don't think this is uniquely a uh, a Christian experience. This is probably a, a somewhat universal experience, at least a universal New York experience. And uh, most people probably understand what it means to be a fool with respect to sex. And a good example of that in our culture is what people call the walk of shame, uh, which is the walk back from, I don't know, some kind of hookup, some kind of sexual encounter that you're not really proud of <laughs> and you're walking back home. And our cu culture calls that the walk of shame. Uh, any married person, again, whether they're a Christian or not, who has violated the marriage covenant and has a, had an affair will tell you very clearly how foolish it was to do that and how it ruined their family and how decimated trust. And this is, of course, well-documented, not only with maybe people you know personally, but it's well-documented with those who are public figures, with those who are celebrities. And afterwards, they say, you know, that was a, the dumbest thing to do. I don't know why I cheated on my spouse. And yet people continue to make these kind of choices over and over and over again, which tells us this, that, that sex is a very powerful force, and it's a powerful force that can make us fools uh, in a very, very short period of time. Now, before we look at the text, uh, let me make a general comment. You know, originally I had scheduled to preach this message a couple weeks ago, <laughs> but as I said before, I, ke I kept holding it <laughs> off, and uh, I, I didn't feel like I was ready to preach it, and I wanted to give myself a little bit more time to, to really think about it and to meditate upon it. And uh, in particular, especially in light of the things that have happened in the past year. And, you know, one of the things I had to think about uh, when preaching this text is that uh, Proverbs seems to be from the perspective of the male. Uh, even you see it in our text, uh, you know, in one of the earlier sermons of the series, I said that Proverbs is structured as, as a teaching to young men. And... Uh, 
fathers are instructing sons. And that's why if you read these passages, uh, it's primarily from the perspective of the male point of view. And of course, that's the pedagogical structure, construction of the book of Proverbs. Uh, And of course, that doesn't mean women don't struggle with sexual lust or that the text has nothing to say to women. Uh, And I think we should be able to extract what it says about sex on a broader level, but still, uh, it it was something I had to think about. And so with that said, Uh, We're going to look at these Proverbs and the wisdom in these Proverbs, uh, but also just understand that there is a a perspective that is male here uh, in which we are uh, reading about. Now, uh, there's two things I want to talk about when we look at the wisdom in the Proverbs, and basically two things I think these passages show us is, first, the, the goodness or the wonder of sex, and second, it shows us the potential dangers or the follies of sex. And we'll just look at those two things. Uh, So first, Let's look at what the Proverbs say about some of the positive things that, we, uh, that it shows us about sex. And, you know, if you come from a kind of a, a, a culture that is not very open about talking about sex and people don't talk about sex or you grew up, uh, you, you might have grown up thinking that sex is something that's shameful or sex that is something that is dirty and not something uh, you're supposed to talk about. And uh, my guess is, uh, you know, many of you are Asian. Uh, a lot of Asian cultures are probably like that. Uh, and the reason I say that is Most of us probably didn't learn about sex from our parents or our families, uh, but we probably learned it from somewhere else. Uh, But to double that, if you grew up in uh, a conservative church and if that church had a very prudish attitude towards sex, then uh, you may not have learned about sex through the church community either. And that means your only recourse to learn about sex is of course where? From wider culture, uh, which is not always the healthiest thing to understand God's design for sex. I think what's interesting about these Proverbs is it's not very prudish when it comes to talking about sex, right? It's, uh, it's actually pretty open, and uh, many times we might be a little bit more prudish than the Bible is actually when it comes to sex. But just, just look at the first passage here in uh, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 to 20, and uh, you may not realize it immediately because some of the language is poetic, but it's, it's using very erotic language here. You know, some of that is communicated through imagery. So, for example, when it says, drink water from your own cistern, that's Hebrew poetry. Um, and you see similar imagery and similar parallels used in the Song of Solomon. But a source, the source of water is it's being compared to a woman's sexuality. And drinking water from your own cistern is, is kind of a way of talking about experiencing sexual refreshment through the experience of sexual, uh, a sexual experience with your wife. Now, even if this uh, translation maybe um, hides the Hebrew imagery a little bit, uh, just look at verse 19. And verse 19 makes it pretty clear. It says, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, by the way, this is from a father to a son. This is what a father is saying to a son. Uh, How many of you uh, sons, how many of your fathers said this to you and had this talk with you? Probably none of us, right? But that's how, that's how uh, Proverbs um, sees, I guess, the passing of knowledge and teaching being done. Now, what this shows us is, again, the Bible is not really uh, prudish about sex because God designed sex to be a very good thing. Sex is not something that's dirty. Uh, sex is not something that is shameful, but sex is wonderful and sex is good. And it's you know, it's meant for procreation, but it's not just meant for procreation because even here we see that the emphasis is actually on p- 
being pleasurable and being refreshing, and that's why you have this water imagery in chapter 5. But you know, as with all things, sex has to be used according to its design in order for it to be good. Uh, All things have a design. A car has a design. And if you don't use a car in the way that it was intended to be used, then it could potentially be a dangerous thing. And so what is the intended design of sex? And, you know, of course, we're borrowing from other parts of the Bible, but even here, there's this underlying assumption about sex that sex should be between uh, a husband and a wife in the context of a marriage. Now, if you notice verse 15, it says, drink from your own cistern, which is a way of differentiating something that is exclusive and private versus something that is common and offered to all. Verses 16 to 17 seem to say that hooking up with someone and having casual sex is not a good thing. And verses 18 and 20 uh, seem to make it pretty clear that the son should enjoy sexual pleasure with his wife while giving a warning against what? A warning against the forbidden woman. And when you take that all together, uh, I think we can say that the Bible's conception of the way God designed sex is sex is designed for marriage. Okay, we're in New York, right? Uh, Some people, uh, if you say that to people, uh, that's going to sound offensive to some people. That's going to sound backwards to some people. Um, You know, we're in New York, and people are sleeping with each other all the time. People are living together all the time before marriage. And uh, uh, what people will oftentimes say and what you hear is this. You know, my partner and I, we are committed to each other. It's not like I'm hooking up all the time. Uh, I am in a committed relationship, and my partner and I, we love each other deeply. Why do we need a piece of paper? Why do we need a marriage certificate to tell us that we love each other? Why can't I share physical intimacy with someone that I'm in love with? And that's, that's the response you often hear. Well, let me answer actually the last question first and move backwards. You know, the reason why sex is reserved for marriage is, again, not because sex is bad, and it's not because sex is dirty, but it's actually because sex is powerful. Sex is powerful. It's not just a physical appetite to be filled, but it is integrally related to our personhood. We know this, why? Because there is something profoundly damaging about sexual abuse in a way that it affects the core of a person, right? Anybody that's been sexually abused, it breaks a person in a very profound and unique way. But sex is also powerful, not just in the negative sense and and the damage that it can cause, but sex is powerful in a positive sense, in the ability to bring a greater sense of union between two people. Because sex is this expression of ultimate vulnerability. And vulnerability can be a great blessing because it has the ability to, again, bring two people much closer together in greater intimacy, but On the other hand, vulnerability can also be very dangerous because what it does is if you make yourself vulnerable to the wrong person, you open yourself up to greater pain and greater hurt. You see, that's why that kind of vulnerability should only be given or it's only safe within a very particular kind of relationship and within what the Bible would call a covenantal relationship. Now, what is a covenant? Uh, A covenant is an intimate, legally binding relationship where two parties make vows to one another, to commit to one another, and that's essentially what you witness 
taking place in a wedding ceremony. It's a covenant. It's an establishment of a covenant. And that's what marriage is. That's what marriage is. That's what the piece of paper says. It says two people are giving themselves over to one another entirely and completely. That means emotionally, that means financially, that means physically, that also <laughs> means legally. And if you're not married and uh, you haven't made it legal and you haven't made these vows before witnesses, then you're still holding yourself back to a certain degree. You haven't given yourself over entirely and completely to another person. And if you're making yourself vulnerable through physical intimacy without the safety of the marriage covenant, then you're not being wise. And you open yourself up to a lot of potential hurt and pain. Now, Proverbs, uh, you know, on, on one hand, it's uplifting the goodness of sex and the wonder of sex, but on the other hand, it, it's showing us some of the follies related to, to sex and sexual lust. Uh, if you look at the imagery in Proverbs 11.22, uh, it really catches your attention. And I don't know if, uh, as I read it, it was kind of like, whoa, right, that <laughs> imagery. But it says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Now, what in the world does that mean? What is it saying? Well, in the ancient world, you know, pigs were considered very filthy animals. Uh, here in America, we eat a lot of pork. We love pork. I just came from Austin, had a lot of good barbecue and a lot of good pork. But, you know, there, there are other cultures that stay away from pork because pork is considered to be dirty. Uh, I don't know if you remember the Sadiq family from uh, Pakistan, but uh, if you uh, noticed, they didn't eat pork. You know, growing up, uh, my mom actually didn't cook pork or anything pig-related. So growing up, the only time I had anything pork-related was when somebody else cooked it or when I was out. But my mom never cooked pork because when she was a child, she was traumatized by a pig. <laughs> And, uh, you know, she grew up in the country, and she saw a pig, and this pig was eating its own feces, and she was so traumatized by it, she's like, I can never <laughs> eat pig ever again. <laughs> and she passed that on to, or tried to pass it on to her children, but I don't mind it. I still eat it. It's delicious. Uh, <clears throat> in the ancient world, pork pigs are filthy animals, right? And what the proverb is saying is that if you put a gold ring in a pig's snout, it doesn't transform the pig and make the pig beautiful. It doesn't make the pig clean. And it is so impossible, I mean, it's so possible to be infatuated by this gold ring on this dirty, ugly pig that you actually miss the fact that the pig is ultimately unattractive. You know, that's what I was alluding to earlier when I said you might have friends who have gotten into relationships with people who have very poor character. Why? Simply because they were physically attractive. They were looking at this gold ring and they were separating this gold ring from the rest of the person, and they missed the entirety of the person. You know, in Proverbs, do you know what determines whether a person is beautiful or ugly? I, it's not what uh, our culture seems to say in terms of physical attractiveness. What makes somebody beautiful or ugly is actually the character of a person. And the problem with sexual lust is that it tends to flip it, and it says what makes a person beautiful or ugly is not the character of a person, but the external appearance, the physical attractiveness of a person. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you can't be physically attractive and have good character. Of course you can. But the problem is when you are so fixated by physical attractiveness, then the temptation is not to pay attention to the rest of the person. And therefore, you miss paying attention to the character of the person. 
And when you're not paying attention to a person's character, you know what you do? You start to compartmentalize a person's sexuality from the actual person, and of course, that's when problems start, right? Uh, I was on family vacation last week, as I said, and uh, we, we got this Airbnb. And you know, at my house, we don't have cable. Um, so it's been a while since I've been like flipping through channels, but at this Airbnb, they had cable television. So you know, I was just flipping through the channels. And as I was channel surfing, uh, there was an episode of Seinfeld on. And it's been like so many years since I saw Seinfeld, and it was very nostalgic, so I started to watch Seinfeld. And the episode that was on was exactly about this. You know, uh, Jerry, he's conflicted. Why? Because he is dating an actress. And the actress he's dating on the one hand is really attractive, and he enjoys the sex with this actress. On the other hand, she's a terrible actress, and he can't stand her as a person. And so basically, the episode is kind of going back and forth. Should I break with break up with her or should I stay with her? I really can't stand her as a person. And he has to rehearse lines with her and it's like torture for him. But then yet, on the other hand, it's like, but she's beautiful, right? Now it's presented in a very comedic light. But you know, in the real world, that separation happens all the time and it's not always funny when it happens. Our culture, of course, is shaped by consumer values and that means sex, of course, is very easily viewed as a commodity and when you separate the sexuality of a person from the actual person, then it's very easy to, to turn sex into a consumer good to be used, and it's very easy to turn that person and objectify a person and use that, look at that person as a consumer or a commodity to be used. And that's essentially what pornography is, and that's essentially what pornography does. It presents to you a sexual image of a person, and it's a person that you don't have a relationship with, it's a person that you don't know, and you see them through the lens of their sexuality. And you know, I think for a while, um, I think the wider, broader culture probably didn't see the, the danger in that and didn't see that as a bad thing, but if you keep up with the news, uh, a lot of studies are starting to come out, right? Secular studies, this is not Christian studies, but a lot of studies are starting to come out uh, showing why pornography is, is so damaging and so harmful to, to society at large. Uh, let me just give you one example, not a study, but um, a popular musician, John Mayer, and he was being interviewed, and he talks about the danger of pornography and, and when he talks about his own habits with pornography, and this is what he says. Internet pornography has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. How does someone not affect this, how does that not affect the psychology of having a relationship with somebody? It's got to. This is my problem now. Rather than meet somebody new, I would rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've already had. What that explains is that I'm more comfortable in my imagination than I am in actual human discovery. And, you, you know, he sees, even through personal experience, not through study, he sees the problem with pornography and how it can damage actual, real human relationship and human interaction. You know, the separation of sexuality and a, of a person from, uh, from the entirety of a person, it's also how people end up getting objectified in a very dehumanizing and in a very degrading way. And uh, let me be real for a minute. Uh, most of the time, it's going to be men objectifying women, right? It's going to be men reducing women to sexual objects. That's when you start to see things like sexual harassment, sexual assault. That's when you start to see uh, a, just a whole range of dysfunctional ways to view the opposite sex if you're a male. But I think that's I think that's very obvious 
that that's a bad thing. But I think this happens in very subtle ways as well. And let me, let me point out one of the subtle ways this happens where you primarily see uh, a person through the lens as a sexual object. You know, uh, I think this is relatively recent. This might have been last year. I don't remember when, but uh, our Vice President Mike Pence, uh, he had said something, and I don't know how much news it garnered, but he had said something about how he follows the Billy Graham rule. And I don't know if you know what the Billy Graham rule is, but the Billy Graham rule is something that Billy Graham did, uh, which is he avoids spending time alone with women or any woman who is not his wife. And the reason why he does that is because he doesn't want to be tempted into cheating on his wife. But when after he said that, uh, he got some pushback. And this is why he got some pushback. What ends up happening when you do that, and especially if you're an important person, a person of leadership or a person of uh, power or a person who can shape things, uh, when you tend to do that, women tend to get excluded from having a seat at the table in these important and meaningful conversations. And so he's vice president. Uh, women tend to get excluded from having important conversations about things like government and policy by virtue of the fact that they're women. And these are what some of the articles are saying. I read some other articles that were coming out, and I think they rightly pointed out something, and they pointed out that, you know, a rule like this, what it actually does is it perpetuates the objectification of women because it says this, it is impossible for men to view women as something more than just sexual objects, right? So even a very subtle way, that narrative of objectifying women, and even though the intentions are right, he's saying, I don't want to cheat on my wife, I don't want to be tempted to cheat on my wife, the underlying narrative is still there. And it's a separation of the sexuality of a person from the entirety of a person. That's why if you're struggling with pornography or any kind of sexual temptation, it's actually not enough just to address the activity. It's not enough to just stop that particular activity. Of course, that's a good start, but you may still have a problem of objectifying people. So that falls short. What's the goal if you struggle with sexual lust? The goal is not just about stopping the physical activity. The goal is to start seeing people in their entirety, to see them as full persons and not just the sexual part of a person, to see them as people to be served, to be cared for, to be loved, rather than seeing them as people to be used and consumed for your own pleasure. That's ultimately the goal. Now, how does that happen? Is there hope for the person who struggles with lust? I would say there is. There is hope. But that hope is not found in a 10-step process. That hope is not found in exerting greater self-will. Ultimately, that hope is found in the entirety of another person in Christ, in Jesus Christ. Now, you know, the problem with sexual lust, one of the problems with sexual lust is what it does is it actually cheapens sex and it strips sex of its intended goodness and its intended glory. And that's what Proverbs 30, 18 to 20 is showing us. 
And again, in poetic fashion, so it may be uh, easy to miss, but uh, in Proverbs 30, it's basically saying that there are things wonderful, so wonderful in creation, uh, sometimes even so incomprehensible to understand for how wonderful these things are. Things like the eagle in the sky, things like the serpent on the rock, things like the ship on the high seas. But in accordance with this, again, this Hebrew poetic style, the climax of this poem comes with the fourth thing that is listed here, the fourth thing that is mentioned. And what is that fourth thing? It is the way of a man with a virgin. Now, one of the commentaries that I was reading uh, said this about the poem, but it is basically praising God for the glories of creation, but especially sexual love. Now that, friends, stands in contrast with what you see in verse 20, with the adulteress who treats sex as something as ordinary as wiping her mouth after eating a meal. It's not glorious at all. It's not wonderful at all. It's something that is very ordinary. You see, that's, I think, what the problem of the secular narrative regarding sex is, is it's just too ordinary. There's no glory in it. Sexual lust makes you think that sexual satisfaction is necessary for deep fulfillment. But that's a lie. That's a lie, friends. You know, if you, have e if you know anyone who has had the experience of sleeping with a lot of people, or even if you listen to how you know, celebrities talk, they oftentimes come to the same conclusion and they say this, that never fulfills. I thought it would be fun, I thought I would be happy, sleeping with all these people, that never fulfills. You know, John Mayer said it recently, uh, I think it's past week, I saw something where Will Smith even said it. You know, I've had friends and I have a friend who have, has been with a lot of women and uh, you know, he confessed to me, he's like, you know, I feel really empty inside and the prospect of sex doesn't really excite me anymore. And, you know, that's probably a product of hitting your mid-30s, right? <laughs> that's an example of the adulteress wiping her mouth after a meal. Nothing glorious about it. So how does sex become more glorious in the way Proverbs 30 talks about? Well, you know, first thing I mentioned before, it has to be within God's design. But ultimately, you know how sex becomes more glorious? It's when our sights are actually not directed upon sex itself, but when our sights are directed upon a greater glory that fills us with such deep satisfaction, awe, and pleasure. And then, and only then, do you really get to enjoy sex because then sex finds its proper place. Now look, I don't know how some of you grew up, but uh, maybe you have a certain conception or a certain picture of God that he wants to take away your pleasure and he wants to kill your joy and that's what all these rules are for. It's to say, I don't want you to enjoy life. That's a lie. On the contrary, God wants us to experience pleasure and he wants us to be filled with joy. But the only way that happens is when we find our ultimate fulfillment, our ultimate delight, and our ultimate joy in Him. In Him. And therefore, what does He want to do? He wants us, He wants to raise us from the ordinary to a place that is glorious. He wants to raise us from the ordinary to a place of glory. But you know, in order for that to happen, 
And here's where the good news comes in, friends. Here's where the gospel comes in. In order for that to happen, Jesus had to descend from his place of glory to a place of ordinary. And that's what you see in the incarnation, right? But, you know, it doesn't stop there because Jesus takes it further and he goes from the ordinary down (laughs) to the inglorious, to a place of condemnation when he goes and when he dies upon a cross. Why does he do that? He does it because that is the only way that we might be raised from that place of condemnation up to this place of glory. You see, the power to rise to glory ultimately doesn't come from us. Uh, People try to do it in various ways, whether through career achievements, whether through fame, whether through money, whether through power. But guess what? The power to rise to a place of glory doesn't reside within us. It is entirely the work of God in the person of Jesus Christ, which is why this gospel that we proclaim is called good news. It's actually good news that the solution isn't found in us because that means that our hope is not in our strength, our hope is not in our will, our hope is not what we can achieve and what we're able to do, but our hope is in someone who did it for us. You know, I know uh, with these kind of messages, uh, it, it can be very easy to feel a little bit maybe condemned and be driven into greater uh, guilt and despair. Um, very easy, right? But that's not the response that we're supposed to have. Because again, that's still looking inward. The response that we're supposed to have is not to look inward, but to look upward. To look at Jesus, to look at his death upon a cross, to look at the promises that it comes with, the promise of greater glory. And if you're still acting on your sexual lusts, if you're living a life of sexual folly, you know why you're doing it? You know what you're doing? What you're doing is you're just settling. You're settling. You're settling for something less. You're settling for something far less glorious than what God promises us in his son. You know, Jesus can be many things to us. Uh, Jesus is our king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. You know what one of the more uh, radical things the Bible says about Jesus It says Jesus is our bridegroom. Jesus is our bridegroom. He is likened to a lover, and his glorious beauty has the power to intoxicate us in a way that maybe some of us have tasted in life through a romantic encounter. But you know, that romantic encounter is only but a tiny taste of what we have through our union with Christ. I think when you experience that kind of love and beauty from Jesus, our bridegroom, sex, physical human sex gets put in its rightful place. It doesn't have to be something that you look for ultimate fulfillment. It doesn't have to be something that you build an identity upon, which means that is, if you're single and if you aren't experiencing sex, doesn't mean, it means that you're not missing out on life and fulfillment and satisfaction. If Jesus is our bridegroom, and if we are experiencing ultimate and deep pleasure from him and from knowing him, you know, on the other hand, I think sex actually becomes more enjoyable. 
because there's not so much pressure that comes with it. Uh, you're not saying this has to be something that fulfills me and complete me. But now you can do what Proverbs 30 does and you can say this is something that is good. It's a good gift of God and I'm going to enjoy it because it comes from God and I'm going to praise God for it for it is glorious. And that gets away from the more conservative, prudish <laughs> understanding of sex as well, right? So friends, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Asian myself. I don't like to talk about sex myself. I don't know what you guys are doing <laughs> during the weekend at night. I don't want to know either. Uh, but maybe I should as your pastor. If you want to tell me, that's fine. You know, I won't condemn you for it. I'll counsel you. I'll, I'll care for you, but um, I guess you know, right? You know how you're, you're living your weeks in your life. And uh, this is Proverbs. This is wisdom. I'm not preaching from law. I'm not saying, stop it. Uh, I'm saying, be wise. Be wise. Because God is supreme wisdom. And his design for us is supremely wise and our ultimate good. So trust in him with all of your hearts. Let's pray together.